Hi, I'm Jenny Breckis, and this is Off the Dais. Welcome back to another episode. This week's episode was a live uh, telephone town hall I had with Reno voters in my capacity as a candidate for Reno mayor. For more information about my candidacy, go to JennyBreckis.com. All right. Hi, this is Jenny Breckis, and welcome to our live telephone town hall. It's Monday, April 18th, and um, I'm glad you joined us. I know there's a lot of opportunities uh, to use your time in the evening, the start of the week, and I appreciate you answering the phone, picking up, and participating in my town hall. I'm the Reno City Council member for Ward 1, and I'm reaching out in my capacity as a candidate for Reno Mayor asking your questions, uh, answering your questions, and uh, giving the opportunity to tell you a little bit about me and why I'm running for uh, mayor. So if you have any questions, all you have to do is press zero, and we'll start answering the questions. It's very um, free-flowing. We've got an hour of time. There'll be people joining us periodically, so I'll be letting... Um, inviting people on to answer questions who are coming in. But if you have any questions for me, uh, Jenny Breckis, Reno City Council member for Ward 1, mayoral candidate, press zero now, and you'll be put in the queue. Um, I'm running to, um, one, restore integrity to the mayor's office, two, um, bring my expertise as a city planner to knit up all the issues, all the complexities that our growing city is facing, uh, in terms of what we need to do, policy and investment decisions to move our community forward. Three, maintain that, that solid look on our uh, city's fiscal health. That's always been very important uh, since I came on in the midst of the Great Recession when our city was crippled, laid off a third of its workforce. And then fourth, um, provide a, a focus on achieving equitable outcomes for all of our neighborhoods, wherever you live that all of our neighborhoods do well, and that starts with housing that can be afforded by residents in those neighborhoods and that they have recreational opportunities there. So let's see. Press zero if you have any questions, and we will start answering uh, those questions. Um, and I don't see any coming in the queue, so I will answer a question. And perhaps the, the first question is always a broad one, um, about the election. So, uh, I am, the re- election is, um, for the primary in Reno elections, unlike some of the other elections that you'll be voting for, um, the top two go on to the, uh, general election in November. In some races in, um, our region, if you get 50% plus one, then the race is done in June. There's pros and cons to that, but it's not a Reno, um, issue. And so that, um, that's how the election has will go, and the primary is June 14th. We have early voting. We have mail-in voting, and uh, you'll be hearing a lot about it as the campaign cycle is moving up. Um, one of the questions that came forward is, what does the mayor do? Why mayor? The mayor is the first of equals on the Reno City Council, sets the tone, much like, if you think about it, uh, the United States Supreme Court. The chief justice sets the tone. But Reno, unlike some other cities, Salt Lake is one, um, is not a strong mayor. That doesn't mean that mayors can't have huge impacts or important um, people, but the mayor is a member of the council, but all the authority to run the day-to-day operations of the city are given over to a city manager. And why do some, some governments have city management form of government and others have strong mayors where the mayor runs the operations of the day-to-day. And that came out of the reform era, and it was um, to make sure that city government is apolitical. You have an executive, a technician running city hall, not uh, a politician. There's pros and cons, you know, both ways. I've actually worked as a city planner in both, um, but that's what we have at the city of Reno. And the mayor still is a very important focus in terms of setting the tone for the council. So, Let's see, our first question is Art, and um, can we get Art on? Yeah, hi, Art. How you doing? Thanks hi. for calling uh, in. Uh, thanks, Jenny. Thanks for taking my call. Um, you know, I'd just like to, you to talk a little bit more about 
affordable housing, uh, you know, it's skyrocketed here like everywhere else has across the country. And in particular, you know, what can we do for affordable housing seniors uh, that might be living on fixed incomes, obviously, and uh, maybe in a Yeah. Oh, that. We... Do that. Thanks. Sure, sure. Thanks, Art. You had a little connectivity, so we're going to drop you off, and I'm going to answer that question. It, it is the number one question people are asking right now. You know, I'll tell you, um, as recent as 2015, I was saying, as a council member, one of Rena's advantages is we have an affordability edge. Um, and that affordability edge meant that housing pretty much leveled off nicely to wages. Um, and that was more uh, for rentals, but also home prices as well. But I also said around there, I think that affordability edge can dissipate very quickly. And, um, boy, I didn't realize how quickly it could be. And there's a lot of factors going on in that. And, um, you know, they're studied broadly because affordability um, has been an increasing um Concern of public policy, societal concern, economic concern in the pandemic where you saw acceleration of price affordability in so many markets across the country. Ours, I think, really um, pivoted in the, you know, the rebound from the Great Recession. I was saying on my last campaign, um, last two campaigns out of city council member, it was like after the Great Recession, Reno just kind of pivoted into the sphere of the Bay Area and Northern California where, you know, housing affordability problems were, were better known and better experienced for decades. And so um, what do you do? How do you focus this? And it's complex. I approach any city issue on what is the ability for the city to do. Um, what can a city do? We don't focus on, um, you know, interest rates. That's other levels of government. And there's twofold. There's one, you need to understand when you're talking about affordable housing, if you're talking about subsidized or that which exists and is provided by the market. During the Great Recession, um, I worked for the state of Nevada on the subsidized programs. Um, so I know those very well. They come through the federal government, they go through the state, and then down to locals. Those are never going to be more than 10%, even when you get the housing authority numbers in there, of your housing stock. So in our society, in our country, housing is, you know, 90% provided market rate. Uh, unlike education that's provided free, you know, healthcare, the government provides a lot of that. Housing is at this point a market product, pretty much, unless you're in that 10% that can get in there, get into the subsidized qualify. So what do you do? When we did our master plan in 2017, we were definitive that the most affordable housing is going to be in the urban core, not out on the fringes where there's high cost of land prep, of infrastructure extension. I have a podcast, and I'll, I'll mention that later, but I was talking to someone who really knows the market very well here in Reno and was saying, quoting costs up above Somerset area of $150,000 to $200 just for lot preparation. That is not affordable housing. So this concept that if you just build, build wherever you know, it's going to come on is not true. You're going to build some nice, expensive homes with great views, but you're not going to um, dent the problem. The problem is is making sure that the market can do very well in producing the infill housing. The council had a meeting last week, and we kicked an idea I was promoting about five, six years ago, which are accessory dwelling units. A city of our size not having an accessory dwelling unit ordinance, these are granny flats that can go in a backyard, is pretty much leaving a big tool on the side. Um, and the mayor and some other council members blocked that a couple of years ago. We also need to prep our infrastructure in the core so it's easier to get there, um, to build that housing in the core. And we also need to um, look at fees, the re, uh, transportation fees that are paid for um, on the cost of new housing development in the core should be uh, stripped. So is all of that going to do it? No but it's going to move the needle a little bit. It needs to be moved. And I never um, stop with this conversation without talking about the, um, the private building industry. It's very centralized. It's, you know, serving Wall Street markets um, and not so much serving local needs because a lot of local builders are no longer 
as active as they were in generations. Not only that, materials and technologies have been a big problem. That industry, unlike a lot of other industries, whether it's, you know, clothing, apparel, or um, even food production, just has not modernized. And a lot of that's labor, and it's hard to get labor. Labor costs are hard. Labor is tight. Um, materials are imported. But that industry needs to move to more modular, more, um, you know, in a contemporary way. Even a local um, modular um, production facility, I think, is something that we were talking about on my last podcast. My podcast is called Off the Dais. My last episode um, was speaking with a very active architect here who um, built a lot of projects and knows the market very well. And we were talking about housing option choice. We need more choice from the granny flats, from um, being able to convert apartments over to condominiums more easily so that people can have home ownership who don't have that opportunity. And we also need to um, work on uh, getting the market to produce uh, products that are locally available and not just high-end when you come into the urban core. It's not an easy issue. It is the issue of our time. And sometimes I just feel like, um, you know, it, it feels like the conversations in the early 90s about health care. You'd hear of someone going in to get their tonsils taken out and it cost them, you know, their mortgage payment for the next 30 years. It, it feels like society's biggest problem right now on affordability is housing costs, and we're going to need all government levels to be doing well to get there. But I'm running a very optimistic campaign. I'm running an optimistic campaign because I think we've got optimistic times ahead of us, and we can solve this issue. But we need to be able to have housing be built anywhere. And it's get, we're getting pretty close there. We just always – I won't go into the zoning issue, um, but, you know, I've administered zoning codes for years. I'm a, a planner um, – with zoning, and, and we know how some good things, but we have not been focused enough on um, production in the core, and that's where we need to go. So thanks, Art, for asking that. And um, rent control, let's see, D. Can we bring D on? Hello? Hi, D? Yes, I'm here. Yeah, this is Jenny Breckis. Thank you for... Um, listening in on this town hall, and uh, you had a question. And I want to remind everyone who's asking questions that this is going to be recorded and it's going to um, drop as my podcast tomorrow morning. So um, thank you, Dee. And what was your question? And what part of town are you calling from? I really like to hear. I live live out in South Meadows in one of the senior apartments. And even... With it, you know, having an option for um, Section 8 housing and that, I didn't qualify at $1,600 a month. They think I could pay over $1,000 a month when I get 1600 a month. We need rent control. I did a little survey myself. I called 250 different apartment complexes. Out of that 250, I only found 12 that will take Section 8 housing certificates. And they are full. Yes, yes. Thank you very much, Dee, for that question. I, um, uh, it's a very good one. And I wanna, I wanna kind of frame the issue a little bit more, um, and, you know, I love these city issues so much, so I really, love talking about him and framing the issue. D is one of the few people, the 10% who can qualify for subsidized housing. But that world is having difficulties too in terms of um, when you get rent inching up as much as they have, a lot of landlords don't want to participate in the voucher program that she is in. In the past, when we had a better affordability um, advantage, a lot of landlords were happy to take those. Um, Section 8 vouchers because they were not that far off of market rates, but now they are. So rent control, that's a question that Dee has asked about, and that is one that is really going to be bubbling up. There are differing views, but I think the prevailing view is that the Nevada legislature has to give cities that authority. Cities can't act on their own to do rent control. I would prefer to call it anti-rent gouging um, legislation. 
but it's a very interesting time because, um, like I said, in Nevada, cities and county governments, they're more or less treated as children um, with not a lot of um, free will or free opportunities to act except for Carson City granting them. And Carson City only goes works, you know, six, you know, every other year. But there is a lot of noise, believe it or not, coming on this uh, rent control anti-gouging legislation out of Clark County. And we've always had higher rents than they have. And the problem's been more acute up here. But you're starting to hear Clark County commissioners and uh, North Las Vegas city council members talk about it. And that collective voice, I don't think, is something that the legislature can ignore. But there's a lot of sausage made down in Carson City when they all uh, gather. But I think if enough cities come forward and say, we need to do something, I think it can be done. I'd like to see um, some policies put into place about how much um, rents can be increased at any time, which it more or less is, you know, controlling rents. And um, when we go down to Carson City, and the city has not yet organized its platform of what it wants in Carson City, but I am going to advocate for that to be on the list. But we always, as cities, don't want the legislature to write our ordinances. We want them to write it as broadly as possible so we can have the ability to craft an ordinance that works for Reno. An ordinance on this topic that may work in Reno is not the same that is in North Las Vegas. But I think it's a conversation that is gathering more steam than it ever had before. And um, those who are going down to Carson City and wanting to ask for your vote, they should also be listening because this is a um, this is an issue that's not going away. And please, everyone know, um, we just had a conversation at city council the other day. About 52% of Reno residents are tenants. So it's, um, it is a population majority, and their tenant needs um, must be paramount um, because their insecurity is greater than, you know, say, someone who's locked into a 30-year mortgage. So thank you very much. D for that question, and I think we have now um, Cam formally, so we're going to let Cam on, and I want to say again, um, I think we have some new people who have come in, and if you're interested in asking me a question, please press zero, and you'll go to the um, call taker who will um, help you get in the queue to answer the question um, to, you know, live, and this is Jenny Breckis, I'm Arena City Council member, but I'm running for mayor. I'm asking for your vote in the June primary, June 14th primary. And um, I want to hear from you. What are issues important to you? And I'm hoping to share with you my vision for Reno as your next mayor. So let's go with um, Cam. Hi. My name's Pam. P-A-M. Oh, I'm sorry. Pam. Pam. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, my issue is... Um, well, all the things that other people ask are definite needs, and I'm asking about homelessness because it is a crisis here, and the people that are homeless uh, are really treated inhumanely and swept away. And uh, anyway, um, um, the group I'm with, the Posse, uh, you know, we are trying to feed people and help them and everything. But it's an overwhelming problem when um, I think many people try to ignore it. Yeah, thank you, um, Pam. And um, let me just, before I answer, please press zero if you um, have any questions and want to ask me a question. So, um, and you'll be patched through. Um, you know, homelessness and housing affordability are pressing issues. Um, they're interrelated, but they are different. Definitely. Yes. And, um, you know, the the um, the rebound to the Great Recession in Reno, just like housing affordability, you know, losing our edge, has also resulted in, you know, growing, increasing numbers of homeless people. Um, and when I try to, um, you know, explain the issue and in my experience, they are not a uh, one they're a multifaceted population, and you really need to understand, um, you know, broadly what people are experiencing. Some have been, you know, priced out of the housing market, and that's the housing affordability, and that's a very difficult um, 
place to be, um, particularly since, and I'm going to, you know, lay it here on my opponent, the mayor, um, that Jacobs development, which she so aggressively pushed for, her uh, lobbyist friend um, promoted their interest. She read disclosures every single time they came with an ask. Um, and you can read it all on my new website, HillarySheBeFacts.com, and her disclosures. He was coming and asking for certain property rights and privileges when he tore down over 500 residential units. And yes, that was our housing of last resort. Those were the motels and so on. And that did have an impact. But a lot of other factors have occurred. Um, I've seen, you know, what used to be kind of lower-end um, apartment complex here get repositioned and, you know, higher, much higher, command much higher um, rent. So affordability is a big, a big issue. Then you have people with mental illness and substance issues, sometimes both, almost always both. And they are a very um, perilous group because um, the services just aren't there. I don't, I'm not, you know, in our country, we don't have broad universal health care. We don't have mental health care broadly available and addiction treatment services. So those folks are, are in very difficult shape also. So outlining, framing that issue, then what can the city do? The city for many years, because the county would not um, manage homeless services, and the county, though, was the one paying for it because they're the ones who get the funding through the, the state government. They have taken on homeless services, and I think the outlook is better for them to do it in a more humane way. They have a social services department. Reno never did. But Reno, under you know prior mayor, stepped into that space because the county won. I think the county's on a good path, but um, it's going to take a long, a lot of long progression for them to get it done right, um, particularly because I think the CARES campus, and I did not support it, was not the right model. Um, so it's very difficult. But I also want to explain to folks that um, Reno is out there, and we've, we've, it's been the area of our budget that we've grown the most with, um, you know, cleaning up the counts, some of our camps, some of our own face-to-face, -to -face, you know, um, work with folks trying to meet them where they are, which is something I advocated for a long time when the CARES campus was being built. you got to have a social worker go to those camps and, you know, let them know they're not going to be able to be there much longer, but build that trust and try and help them make their next step. But it is a very tough issue. Those are the two issues cities are dealing with, particularly in the West right now, housing affordability and homeless services. And we really need all levels we have a government to be doing well on it, particularly health care. So thank you very much. Um, and we're going to move now. We've got a not bunch of questions. Um, and I just don't understand that question from Sharon. Um, and I will say uh, I've got my team, Adam and Rachel, here. So if we could maybe get a little more um, information on that one, I'll bring it on. It's something about the DA. But um, – but let's hear from Doug. He's got an environmental uh, question. Hi. Can you hear me? Hi. Yeah. Hi, Doug. Hi. Um, you know, I was, I was wondering, my, my wife and I just uh, signed up and we, we signed up for some solar on top of our house. And we were aware that Nevada Energy, um, you know, has a mandate to have a certain percentage of their uh, power generation, you know, other than fossil fuels uh, by 2030. And I was wondering if maybe uh, you could lobby for some like uh, new construction, just make it mandatory to put solar on new, new construction commercial um, or even commercial and residential. They built a, yeah. um, they built, they built a uh, RV storage facility in Verdi that's because it's contiguous with other parts of the city. I believe that might even be city of Reno, but they cut down, I don't know, 120, 60-foot-plus trees, and, um, you know, it would have been perfect to put solar on top of those big metal awnings that they build for RV storage. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I toured that that um, facility a while ago, and they do have solar on some of those. Um, oh, they do? And they have – they told me they have enough solar to, um, you know, support their um, – you know, support their facility. They don't need solar over everything because then that'd be pushing it back to the grid. And the grid is not as 
beneficial of putting solar in as it used to be. Nevada Energy has kind of pulled back from some of those benefits as more solars come on. My husband and I put solar on our house in 2009 and got the best rate, and then they, you know, slowly decreased, you know, the payback to folks. But that is a building code issue, and it is one that has come up. Come up. The council a while ago had a suite of uh, sustainability add-ons to the um, zoning code ordinance, and they took a pass on it, and I didn't support that. I wanted them to continue it, it put it into place. The planning commission had cleared it, and they um, there was concerns from the development community. I didn't think they were reasonable. I thought it gotten uh, gone through enough, but the, it's supposed to come back, and, um, you know, that needs to get on and in there. I think there is a way to get in there. Um, not every house is going to need to have it. Not every house is going to have the, you know, the um, in a subdivision, the exposure or a commercial development. But there's a way to bring it in through the zoning code. I think the planning commission wanted to go there, but the council took a pass. And then there's also the building code. And the building code gets updated every five years, and it's a regional building code. And then another option is to just have everything ready so when a homeowner wants to put them on, they'll put them on. But, right, um, and that's, that's kind of why I suggested new construction commercial because, you know, the the cost would be probably a little more in line for that. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for your question. And what part of town are you calling from? I really, my city planner brain is very geography-based, and i just like to understand, um, you know, what part of town and qu- questions are coming from. Where, what part of town? Oh, I live in the northwest, up off of Rob Drive. Oh, great. Okay, thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right, thank you. Let's, okay, thank you. Let's go to Susan, and then we'll go to Chris, who feels that rent uh, about rent. But I want to um, talk to Susan, who has a question about water rates, one of my favorite topics. Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, you know, uh, years ago, well, of course, I, I recently heard about how uh, Tom was saying, oh, well, all this development that's happening they secure the water rights before they can um, be approved for all this development. But the thing is, is what they do is, because this happened to me several years ago, they called trying to buy my water rights. Well, I, you know, I, have, I own a home in, in old northwest Reno, and um, I refuse to – I'm a geologist, so I, <laughs> I, I kind of knew what they were up to. I said, uh, I refuse to sell them my water rights because it's like – how much water is under my property? And yet, on, under my property, I am entitled to a certain amount of water rights. And then they got real nasty with me because I refused to sell them my water rights. But that's how they accumulate uh, their water rights. And, and, you know, we have climate change and um, droughts, severe droughts and everything. We don't have enough water for all this development. Yeah. I, you know, Susan, that it really is the question. Um, of, you know, the future of, you know, the West. And um, I think it's a very good one to frame. And it's I think it's also a good one to um, understand what your mayor feels about that because that is a big, big topic. And so I appreciate you bringing it up. I've sat on Tumwa for, um, uh, I think, six years now on the board. And, um, oh, you know what, I'm going to just quickly interject and say, press zero if you have any questions. If you just came on, we're dialing out continuously, and you have any questions you want to address, just press zero, and um, you'll be put into the queue. So, Tumwa is our public water purveyor, and they are regional. Yeah. And they were bought. Probably one of the best public policy decisions I've seen this region do since I lived here in 19, moved here in 1998 was to buy the public water authority. So it's not a private corporation. It's owned by the people from Sierra Pacific about 15 years ago. Some people say they paid high, but you know, it was probably worth it. So um, we have an interesting, and I find a simple water system. And basically somehow under the grace of who knows, we got California water reservoirs Truckee, Independence Lake, Donner, and so on. And it's all water that flows through our valley, Truckee, um, you know, the Truckee River out to the Pyramid Lake, which is owned by the tribes. And they have certain sovereign rights. Always know that Nevada tribes are their own countries um, of a equivalent uh, sovereign nation like the United States government. So um, 
Yeah. So we have always historically relied upon the Truckee River, and it's a good water source. And sometimes that's balanced with groundwater pumping. Now, groundwater pumping is dangerous place to be. Um, and you just, you know, example, Central Valley and some of the, you know, Panhandle and other areas. But we blend very well. And in Harry Reid's final um, effort, it was a big focus for him. He wanted to get an agreement that really said what the law is are going to be on the Truckee River. And he got it finished right before he left. And everyone knows what it is, and it's calculated, it's measured, there's someone who administers it, and, and so on. And so it's pretty good, but it is what it is. And um, if you spend any time reading about the Colorado River, which is in a terrible shape, because the the rules that it, uh, you know that determine what the Colorado River is, which goes through eight or nine states, you know we're way overestimated, and they're an emergency situation, and um, so we're not there. But you know what? We have a lot smaller population, and you know the future is so uncertain. Is one our place is going to move to, you know, where water is scarce. And I, I think, I think it is. I think my husband's from El Paso, Texas, which is even drier than Las Vegas. And I do not see a world where places like El Paso, like Las Vegas, maybe even, you know, some of the Arizona cities do not go into a real hookup control, which is a growth, you know, growth, the strictest growth management you can get. Um, in the next 10 years or so, because they are in terrible shape. So, you know, having water, small population is a concern, but you don't really know how great those original estimates were. And as you see unusual years like this one, um, you know, what's going on? I, I um, was talking to a, a hydrologist last week, and they're having a hard time even modeling this, this what happened this year. You know, they're, they're starting yeah, to get more sophisticated. Yeah. They can fly it. You know, they can understand it. But it is, you know, snowpack with the little sticks is, um, you know, they can get more scientific. But it's a tough one to know where we're going, what's going to happen. Now, the other thing about water is the rule of water in the West, and I'm, I'm really most familiar with the West, and there's a difference between the West, the Midwest, and the East, but is always these importation projects. And I think the era of importation projects are also over because everyone, I don't care if you're a little town, dying town in the middle of wherever, you're going to fight water imported to the big um, metro because that's going to reduce your future. And I think the Las Vegas, um, you know, Metropolitan Authority really learned that with, you know, Eli and some of those Oregon towns um, fighting them on the pipeline. Now, Reno does have a pipeline water resource, and that was the Honey Lake that, again, came out of California. And that, the pipe has barely turned on that. So we do have that water resource. But um, I, I just, I, I really want to emphasize to people, we're seeing things in places that had fundamentals shift, and they're, they're, they're going to worst-case scenario. And so we have an open question where we're going, but we also have some good outlook. The Truckee Meadows Water Authority is about to open up a surface water treatment plant off of um, Thomas Creek. So we've never gone to the streams, you know, the, the tribu- tributary streams. And that one is just about to come on. So we do pretty well, but um, but we've, you know, it's an uncertain future. And, you know, we don't know what fires will do, um, sedimentation and all your geologists, to, you know, our river supply. So that's another unknown. So, um, but I'll tell you, and, I don't know if someone wants to hear me talk about sewer rates for 10 minutes. They probably don't. But Tomwatt sets their rates very fairly, more fairly than Reno sewer and more fairly than your gas taxes are set. So Tomwatt, in terms of rate setting and calibrating that to what it's going to cost to run the authority, looking in the future, and also um, uh, making growth pay for itself, is doing as well, about as well as it could. So, you know, be positive about Tomwatt but also be cautious and skeptical about, you know, what they are going to learn as we move into these new scenarios. So um, I appreciate the question because we're in the West and we got to talk about that. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Okay. And, um, again, if you just came on, um, 
we um, are taping this. It'll be put in my podcast that is coming on. Um, we'll drop tomorrow. It's called Off the Dais. And um, so recording it for that. And press zero if you have any questions for me. Um, let's see, Chris. I'd really like to hear from Chris. Uh, hello, good evening. Thank you for making yourself available to the constituents, and uh, thanks for your public service as well. Uh, I just had a, a piggyback question for um, a previous commenter regarding um, affordable housing, uh, especially for those who rent. So I'm going to take a, a moment of your time, if you don't mind, to kind of paint a picture of my story to kind of help you understand. So I'm a military veteran, uh, U.S. Air Force, moved here about four years ago. Um, my fiance and I are in the middle of building a home together, but um, during COVID, I lost my job as a restaurant manager and ended up enrolling into the Veterans Rapid Retraining Assistance Program, which allowed me access to an additional degree. So I'm currently studying accounting. Um, I also moved into Ward 5 about two years ago with a lease um, after a recently discharged bankruptcy. And I just want to say that the improvements in this particular region that I'm living in in Ward 5, um, owned by... Um, an investor, Jeff Jacobs, who owns the uh, Sands and the Gold Dust West, for whom I work, um, recently hired me on as an accountant, um, but I also rent from them. And so I just wanted to ask, as far as, like, rent controls and, you know, you know, fixed price housing and all that, um, I really feel like they've done a good job, and I don't know if it's intentional or just purely coincidental, um, but we want to make sure that with affordable housing we're attracting the right kind of people into the city. So I'm, a, I'm currently a graduate student. Um, I'm go, or I should say going to enroll in a graduate program. I've already completed a bachelor's degree. I'm currently finishing an unrelated associate degree in accounting, but they brought me on as an accountant. They matched my pay with my previous position. Um, I was laid off during COVID as a restaurant manager, of course. Obviously, that wasn't the best industry to be in, um, but I really feel like the, the route that they've chosen and the kind of people that they've tried to attract, they want people who are going to work in the area, who are living in the area, um, who are going to benefit. So I'm just curious, as far as affordable housing goes, do you have any specific ideas to make Reno the kind of place people want to go to um, if they do need affordable housing, with the exception of people who are income-restricted, um, such as seniors and uh, and the like? Um, but I just want to make sure that we're, you know, keeping the, keeping the environment a place where people want to come, where we're going to attract people. So do you have any specific ideas with that? Yeah. Hey, and – Chris, um, thank you very much for your service, and I wish you all the luck in, in your transition. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, when you mentioned that you work for um, Jacobs Entertainment, um, they have very enhanced private property rights. Um, they've got some credit, which is time and money, for sewer, for all the um, hookup, frozen hookup costs, for all the um, – you know, units that they tore down. So um, suggestion is, you know, vacant land does not serve um, our community well, so build, 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 you know. And I think that, uh, you know, hope that they will continue to move forward with new units um, because vacant land, as we all know, doesn't do do anything. So that's going to be very, very important. Um, for me, if you're going to give a public benefit and that's something that's not available to someone else, whether it's a development agreement, which Mr. Jacobs got, which is enhanced property rights, or, um, you know, a hold to, you know, not have to pay your sewer fees in a timely fashion like all of us do quarterly. You have to deliver something in turn. And that would be um, some sort of housing that hits that public need. And so that's why I didn't support those um, development agreements and uh, the subsidies um, on the sewer hookups for Mr. Jacobs and others because there was no, quote, quid, quote, quid pro quo. They weren't having to deliver anything affordable for what they were getting. And um, to me, that's just not the way that I want to play with public policy. Um and so that that was why I did not support support that. They need to deliver if you're going to subsidize someone um, a public need. Now, if you don't want to come and ask for things from the city and ask for something that's not available to others, um, great. Go utilize your property rights 
and, you know, hopefully someone will deliver great projects. I know everyone wants to be proud of what they do. And when you own land, you want to be proud of what gets built there, especially after you tear something down. So I'll be looking very much to see how he progresses forward. And the irony of the Jacobs development, and it's an area I represent in downtown Reno, is there are so many people all around Jacobs building new units. If you know where St. Thomas Cathedral is on West 2nd Street, um, there's a, a... a group there that redid the old motel there. They didn't tear it down. They rebuilt it. And then on the other part of that lot, they've got new units going up right next to the cathedral. And there's some over on Keystone Avenue. And there's a few others peppered around. So there is activity in that area. It's not going to be income restricted, but they didn't ask for anything from the city. So, um, and it will be great. It will be great housing that we need. I wish Jacob all the luck. I hope he starts building and can build a product that we can all be proud of here in the city. So thank you very much. And, again, um, press zero if you want to ask me a question and um, want to hear from you. This is Jenny Breckis. I'm the Reno City Council Member for Ward 1, and I'm running for mayor. And I want to hear from you and uh, your issues of concern helps me um, uh, go through this long interview process with our Reno residents and explain my vision to them um, for our city over the next four years and hear what's most important to them. So we've got Beth on the line. Hello, Ms. Breckis. Can you hear me? Hi. Yes, I can, Beth. Okay, thank you. I was just reading next a uh, next door post where somebody was expressing frustration at Reno and they were leaving because of all the um, development and and crowd crowd situation. And in fact, let me quote this. Uh, this was from March 19th. Most of the recent issues have come from a mayor and council giving blind consent to huge developers who make no guarantees for the amazing deals that they are getting from the city at the citizens' expense. And then um, another person chimed in, and it was not me, um, our mayor, what's her name, the unseen one. She is running for re-election. How many would even recognize her? And I've noticed that um, uh, the mayor doesn't show up on time for these meetings that are bi-monthly, and it doesn't seem like she um, has a lot of respect for the constituents during public comment. And uh, if you were to be elected mayor, how would you do things hopefully differently? And I'm also concerned about the transparency that um, it seems to be lacking down there sometimes. Well, thank you for your question, Beth. So that's a lot there. But um, Mayor Sheevy and I both started on the same day in um, November of 2012. We took office the same day. She was the the at-large council member, and I was the Ward 1 council member. So we've served the same amount of time. She jumped over to mayor when that office became vacant in 2014. The mayor, as I said previously, is first among equals on the council, sets the tone. I've seen it, you know, with two mayors now. The mayor really sets the tone and the focus of the council. And I wouldn't be running against someone I've served with for this many years if I didn't believe that the tone needed a course correction. Um, You can go to a website that my campaign recently launched, HillarySheedyFacts.com, and there's issues there about um, conflicts of interest, uh, lack of transparency, an ethics warning she received this year for using city resources for personal um, purpose. Uh, she received a confidential letter from the ethics commission that I call upon her to release. So there are issues there. It's not personal. It's business. It's what's best for the Reno voters. And that's why I am, um, you know, offer, offering myself as an alternative to four more years of her. And um, she can absolutely... Um, you know, make her case, and I know she will. And she will in a very well-funded way because um, she's got a lot of uh, resources behind her from those who have had a lot of business come before the council. But moving on to the other question about, um, you know, growth, leaving Reno. One is um, I have made myself very accountable, um, very focused on constituent services. No issue is too small, too mundane for me to really jump into as a city 
issue because I'm a city person. Um, my dad was a city council member and a mayor in my hometown. My sister sits on that one now. That experience led me to become a city planner. Um, so I've been around cities, you know, 25 years now professionally and, um, and, you know, really think they're fascinating, um, you know, lively spaces and places for us all to succeed. And I'm running a very positive campaign because with the retreat of the pandemic, we're going to be into wonderful times and wonderful times of society coming together in shared spaces. And we need to make sure that Reno has great shared spaces and great private spaces also in housing. And so there's a lot of excitement. There's federal money coming to the local governments that we've never seen. It's almost like the Great um, Depression, the money that's gone down, you know, and I know people don't like what Washington did, and some people think they should have done more. fact of the matter is every mayor in the country and every city council member wants to use that money to advance, you know, their community's interests. I'm afraid the mayor will waste it, and I'm afraid she'll give it away to developers and not put anything and demand anything of them in return, just like we saw with this 1,000 homes in um, 1,000 days. So uh, it is a pivotal moment for our community. But it's also, a, you know, a good opportunity. But there's also challenges. And one of the greatest challenges, and the reason you said, well, people are leaving Reno. I've been hearing people who have the opportunity to live other places leaving because of smoke season. And we can't do a whole lot about the fires burning up in California. But I am so focused on public health and particularly the health of our young people with their, um, their lungs during this smoke season. And we're in for it. We're going to be, we're in this change um, dynamic, and it's, it's in the West broadly, but Reno's feeling it a lot. I was up at UNR not that long ago, and the UNR football team is looking for indoor training space for early season. We need to find indoor spaces for us to have recreation opportunities, maybe the convention center, maybe the city's bowling stadium, and also, we need to up our clean air shelters um, for those who don't have good clean, good air um, handling capacities in times of smoke, um, you know, coming down on us and get through those weeks, months. Some years will be better than others, but that is a very important focus that isn't even being discussed um, at Reno City Council. And I want to use some of the money for that because we cannot, um, we need opportunities to adapt in these climate conditions we're experiencing. Some cities are building seawalls. Our city needs to build indoor spaces for recreation so that people have that option in those periods and not damage their lung and their long-term public health. And so I just wanted to bring that forward as an issue that's very central to me as mayor, and it is one that I'm hearing a lot of people say, think that it is a, a problem for Reno and um, – impacting our attractiveness as a city and also making people think that, you know, it's time for them to leave. So thank you very much, um, Beth. And we're going to go to Steve Hart. Thank you. We're going to go to Steve now. And Steve, um, could you ask your question and then tell me what part of town you live in? I'm really trying to just hear where questions are coming from. I'm here in Golden Valley. And I'm wondering... I'm wondering about the grid, if uh, we have hackers or an EMP or something like that. Are we going to be protected from that the way it is now? And if not, are you going to do something about it when you become mayor? Are you ta- – I'm sorry. Are you talking about um, graffiti? The electric grid. Oh, the, the electric – Yeah. Yeah. The stability of the electric grid? Right. Can you hear me yeah. okay? Yeah, yeah. No, I can hear you. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, so Ward 1, where I represent, has had two fires caused by Nevada Energy Power Lines. That was the Pine Haven fire of November of 20, and it was the um, – Power, the Collin Power Line. And I don't know um, if you recall, but November 20 was a very windy day, and the tower of the um, one of the casinos saw a spark um, up on those power lines, and then the fire started. So um, it's been very important to me 
uh, in doing the constituent work for those folks I, um, you know, represent up there, many of whom were also, um, you know, had to evacuate for the Collin fire. So I've had extensive conversations with Nevada Energy, and I understand they get it. And they're watching PG&E over in California that just paid $55 million for the Dixie Fire to like four or five California counties that they understand, you know, probably got off easy. But they have uh, taken steps to help uh, fund fuel mitigation. And most interestingly, they are going to be working to harden lines that are these above lines that slap around. I, after the Pine Haven Fire, I traced this line because it – that goes out of Collin Ranch and it goes strings all the way across the flank of that, that mountain there to a subdivision in the county. And who would string an electrical grid across the flank of a mountain just to serve one little subdivision? It should run down one area and then up Virginia and then up uh, Mount Rose Highway. And um, they explain that they are learning some new technology to handle these lines to um, more or less insulate them. Um, they're starting up at the lake where they have a lot of vulnerabilities and they're training their, you know, for better, lack of a better, um, term, their, their linemen, their, um, you know, pole handlers to be able to learn how to harden these lines. And they say they are going to harden that particularly bad line up there. Um, so holding them accountable, um, making sure that they're making the investments is very important, um, to me in our vulnerable areas. And um, does that answer your question, or did you have any other question about the lines? Oh, okay. Oh, I, I think he dropped. Let's see. Do we have – I hope that was his question. And um, feel free to call again. I thought that was a really great um, question. Um, about the power grid, and that was something I've spent quite a bit of time on um, this year. So if you have um, any more questions, one came through, they didn't want to speak online, um, but I'll answer that. But I just want to repeat again, this is Jenny Breckis, Marina City Council um, member for Ward 1, but I am reaching out in my capacity as a candidate for mayor um, and hearing your questions. And asking you, um, uh, telling, sharing with you a little bit of my vision for the community. So, um, one last question, then I'll summarize um, back up is um, fuel tax. I recently um, wrote a newsletter about that. Um, I write on a platform called Substack. It's delivered to your email, and it's kind of the city planner in me, who's also um, a city council member, writing on local government issues. Um, and I was meaning to write one for some time, and then the Ukraine issue war uh, started, Russian invasion, and gas strike prices spiked again. Um, and so it is front and center in so many communities' minds right now. And um, uh, gas tax is very interesting in Washoe County. It is doesn't have really a parallel in any other region I've ever seen. And that is that the gas taxes that the voters approved in 2008 in Washoe County, um, I think it was 2008, right at the onset of the Great Recession, um, index. And they're up around 42 cents a gallon right now. Um, those, those taxes are more than the federal and state gas tax combined. So Nevada, a very low tax environment, because we don't have state income tax, we have very limited property tax um, calculations, goes other places for taxes. And the Nevada legislature, the Washoe County Commission, the voters decided to go this rate. But at this point, these gas taxes are so high, and they are without precedent. Um, so if you hear, know anyone who... Uh, tells you, I'm in Carson City and I'm driving up, let me get gas before I come up. It's because, you know, gas, people realize the difference just to our neighboring counties. And even down in Las Vegas, where our governor, as a county commissioner down there, was able to get a gas tax, work on a gas tax for Clark County, it it, it stops at about 10, 11 cents. Um, it sunsets in 10 years. Our gas tax never sunsets. So it's going to keep going with inflation 
And that's going to be a big jump here in these inflationary times. And I've been advocating for a long time that we have a local conversation about this gas tax. It's great to have the resources and local resources, but it's also time to call for responsibility on a gas tax that has no sunset. And I compare that to my earlier conversation on Tumwa that does their rate setting very well. They don't put them on autopilot. They put them in five-year increments and talk about when they'll be needed, and they calibrate that to the improvements they want. RTC of Washington County has been able to play very freely with a lot of road projects because they're not called to accountability on the funding source. That needs to change. There's other things that need to change with RTC Washington, how we do transportation investment in this community, but it is a focus that's central to me because gas taxes are a household expense, particularly folks who are listening from some of those more drive-in communities like the North Valleys and Golden Valleys who we just spoke with. So um, please go to mysubstack.com and pay attention to local gas tax. Um, let's see. I don't know if we have time for one more. Um, I guess we do. Um, let's bring on Charlie. And, Charlie, it's got to be a really quick question. And tell me where you're calling from, Charlie. Yeah, my question, is, uh, like I said, was uh, about the law enforcement. It's scary to walk around downtown Reno after about 8 o'clock at night, especially if you go into any of the back alleys or any of those areas over there. My dad was a Reno police officer years ago, and uh, you used to be able to feel proud of your town. You go down there during a the week and walk up and down, the, it's disgusting. What's going to be done about that? Yeah, thank you very much, Charlie. And I'll let you know, I live very close, 15 minutes to downtown to City Hall. And, um, you know, eight, nine years ago, I let my daughter walk down there, who is a middle schooler, in the middle of the morning to the skate in the early morning on a weekend to go ice skate. That's how comfortable I was. About a month ago, I was walking from the Pioneer home, and I called my husband the whole time because I was nervous. So it has become problematic. Um, we've put a lot of resources in with the, the, the ambassadors and some special assessments down there. But I want to – this is a great question for close-up. Reno's downtown is not where it should be. Even before COVID – we're in the era of great downtowns coming back. Reno's downtown is a more difficult and challenging one than pretty much any downtown I know in the country because the industry around the gaming has some fundamental has fundamentals that are a little different. Um, they are it's a one industry downtown, been concentrated with ownership. It's been somewhat incompatible with other uses, I think. But it's also had great opportunities as some of the casinos have transitioned over to residential. Overnight, you can have a 1,000, you know, 500 units, say, if the Harris goes. So activity helps downtown. Um, government services, like the police that you mentioned, the ambassadors, help downtown. I'm going to just close up here. Is our downtown should be doing better, even with COVID. We tried almost everything in the book, from railroad projects to large facilities, the convention center. Who else but a city planner who's focused on downtowns to help Reno's downtown? It will be a very strong focus as me as mayor. And I was 24 years old working as a city planner in Albuquerque, working on downtown revitalization strategies. We have not used some of the deployment tools that we need to do. And a lot of those are encouraging more activity. So you feel safer when you're coming out of the Pioneer because there's a lot more businesses going on there. So we're going to close up. I've got one more minute. Um, Joan, I think, had a question about the homeless population, and I appreciate that question, Joan. We're not going to have a chance to get to it, but um, I think 25% of our topic was on housing and homelessness, and that's pretty much what I would believe that is on the focus on our community right now. It will be a central focus to me as Reno's next mayor. JennyBreckis.com has all my information, my Substack, my podcast, how to get on my email list. Um, reach out to me. My phone number's there. I answer my phone. Love to hear from you, looking and asking for your vote to be Rena's next mayor. Thank you all who participated. I appreciate it. All participants who called into the town hall consented to being recorded for that purpose. Visit my website, jennybreckers.com, 
Follow along on Twitter and Instagram for more information. You can also email me at offthedais at gmail.com to make suggestions on topics and guests that you would like to hear from on upcoming episodes. We'll be back May 3rd with an all-new episode. I'm Jenny Breckis. Thanks for listening.